Welcome to the sermon podcast of Paley Presbyterian Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Becca Bruner. So our scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're reading again all through this series from the message version of the Bible. And so I invite you to join me reading these first eight verses of chapter one, the book of Revelation. Let's look at it together. It says, a revealing of Jesus, the Messiah. God gave it to make plain to his servants what is about to happen. He published and delivered it by angel to his servant, John, and John told everything he saw, God's word, the witness of Jesus Christ. How blessed the reader, how blessed the hearers and keepers of these oracle words, all the words written in this book. Time is just about up. I, John, am writing this to the seven churches in Asia province. All the best to you from the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is about to arrive. And from the seven spirits assembled before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, loyal witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of all earthly kings. Glory and strength to Christ, who loves us, who blood-washed our sins from our lives, who made us a kingdom, priests for his Father forever. And yes, he is on his way. Riding the clouds, he'll be seen by every eye. Those who mocked and killed him will see him. People from all nations and all times will tear their clothes in lament. Oh, yes. The master declares, I'm A to Z. I'm the God who is, the God who was, and the God about to arrive. I'm the sovereign strong. So we are continuing today in our series on the Apostles' Creed. And the statement we're going to look at today is a tough one. Today we're going to think about the statement, From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. This one's hard. And it's hard, I think, for a couple of reasons. First thing that kind of makes it a little bit hard is that we're talking about something that hasn't happened yet. Right? Everything else we've, we've talked about thus far in our series, everything else that we've said that we believe in, in the creed, it's, it's things that have already happened. God the Father has already created the heavens and the earth. Jesus Christ has already been conceived and born, lived and died, rose again and ascended into heaven. All of that has already happened. So now we're getting into territory of things that haven't happened yet. Nobody has seen what we're talking about. Nobody can say for sure, yep, I know that's true. So it's important to to go back to remember what we talked about from the very, very beginning of this series, pointing out the reality that, that in the creed, we don't say things like, I know for sure. We don't say, I am absolutely certain. No, what do we say? We say, I believe. I believe that this is true. Even if I've never seen it, I believe. It's a statement of faith. And that's important, right? 
because this is hard stuff. It's hard because it's something, this Jesus coming to judge the quick and the dead, that's something we've never seen. It's future-oriented, but there's a second reason why it's hard. Probably a bigger reason why it's hard is it's about judgment. And last I checked, judgment isn't really a popular topic with just about anybody. Nobody I know is eager to be judged. If you've had the unfortunate circumstance of getting a speeding ticket or something worse and had to, to go to court for that and stand before a judge, and the day that that happens, nobody's waking up thinking, oh, goody, what a wonderful day this is going to be, right? Nobody wants to be judged. It's scary. And more than that, more than just uh, the idea of a, a human judge, uh, when it comes to the idea of a divine judge, see, it can even worse. You know, even the most devoted Christian believers kind of squirm sometimes at the idea of God being a judge. That makes us nervous. And you know what? It's not just us. David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Research Group, and several years ago, noticing the, the overall decline of, of Christianity, of church attendance, all that in the United States, especially, though not exclusively, among young people, he set out to, to figure out why. Why is that, that fewer and few, fewer people, fewer and fewer younger people are, are wanting to be part of the church? And, and his research resulted in, in a book that's entitled Unchristian, What a New Generation Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. And, and in this book, he, he, he notes that among the struggles that non-Christians have with Christianity and with the church, pretty high on that list is their perception that the church is extremely judgmental, that Christianity is a religion of judgment. That's what they think. Nine out of ten young non-Christians say that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. And, you know, that's just one of the reasons why they kind of want to have nothing to do with it. So, yes, the statement of the creed we're going to look at today, it's, it's a difficult one. And I've, I've struggled to put this message together today, I'll be honest. I'd, I'd much rather talk about grace and hope and, and joy and love. But as I've thought and, and prayed and, and, and really kind of wrestled through this topic this week, I've become more and more convinced that the idea of divine judgment not only is it not the opposite of grace and hope and joy and love, but it's absolutely necessary for grace and hope and joy and love. Divine judgment and divine love, they do and they must go hand in hand together. So, with that, here's our, our thesis statement for today. And it's actually really, really good news. So if you're a note taker, you can write this down. Here it is. Here's our thesis. Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. That's it. That's our, our thesis statement for today. Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. It's one sentence, but we're going to look at it in three ways. The first thing we need to talk about is this reality that Jesus Christ will come. Jesus will come again. Now, of course, we all believe that Jesus Christ has come, but we also believe that he will come again. 
It's not something that Presbyterians tend to spend a whole lot of time talking about, but we do actually believe in it, the second coming of Christ. When we turn to scripture, we find that Christ's coming again is mentioned some 300 times in the 260 chapters that make up the New Testament. And you know what? It's, it's something that we pray for every Sunday. Did you know that? Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Every time we pray those words, we're asking God to hasten the return of Jesus Christ and the coming of God's kingdom here to this broken world. We pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So yes, we, we believe that Jesus will come again, but, but when it comes down to some of the details, some of the when and the where, that's where things start to get pretty fuzzy. In the passage that you heard Jonathan preach from last week, a passage in Acts, Jesus' disciples asked him, they said, is this the time you're going to restore God's kingdom? And, and Jesus told them, you don't get to know the time. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, when he would talk about God's future kingdom, and he, and he talked about it a lot, whenever he did, he always taught that it would come unexpectedly in a time and in a manner that nobody could anticipate and nobody would expect. Of course, that hasn't stopped a whole lot of people from trying, right? Trying to make their own predictions of, of people who are out there saying that they for sure know exactly when and exactly where the second coming will take place. But you know, Jesus made it clear that nobody knows. Nobody knows the day or the hour of his return. Jesus said not the angels, not even Jesus himself know, only God. So I think it's safe to say that if Jesus doesn't know when or where he'll return, none of us do either. Though we don't know anything about the when or the where, Scripture does tell us a little bit about the how. How Jesus will return, kind of the nature of it. See, see while well, Jesus' first coming, we could say it was marked by obscurity. Jesus' first coming was marked by obscurity. And his, his first coming, you know, nobody really knew who he was except for a handful of lowly nobodies. So if his first coming was marked by obscurity, his second coming is going to be marked by glory. Revelation tells us that he will ride in on the clouds, that every eye will see him and know him exactly for who he is. In Jesus' second coming, it will be marked by glory. Another thing we know about the how, again, comparing to his first coming, his first coming, it was marked by humility, right? Right. Jesus lowered himself. He came alongside us in our suffering. Jesus' first coming was marked by humility. His second coming, it's going to be marked by power. In his return, Jesus will, will no longer just come alongside us in our suffering, but he is going to come in power to destroy all that which causes us to suffer in the first place. When the Bible talks about Jesus' second coming, we're giving this picture of a new creation. 
set free from the bondage of sin and death, which is why we long for Christ's coming. It's why we pray for his kingdom to come, because it means a new heaven and a new earth where everything broken gets fixed, everything hurt gets healed, every pain and sorrow and grief gets undone. Just imagine it for a minute. Imagine no more cancer. Imagine no more COVID-19. Imagine no more snipers or terrorist attacks, no more abused or abandoned children, no more broken relationships, no more racially charged violence, no more riots, no more injustice where, where a small portion of the world's population cons consumes most of the world's resources, leaving the vast majority to subsist on scraps. No more despair or depression. No more saying goodbye to loved ones at hospital beds. No more memorial services. For we have this promise. It's recorded at the very end of the book of Revelation. That on the day of Jesus' return, God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Christians believe, we believe, that the saving plan of God that was inaugurated in the first coming of Jesus will be brought to completion with his second coming. And the way that that's going to happen is through Jesus coming to judge. Which is why we say that we believe that Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. So, real quick aside, with apologies for the quick pun, uh, when we say that Jesus shall come to judge the quick and the dead, we're, we're not saying what I kind of thought was going on when we said this creed when I was a kid. It's not saying that, that Jesus has a particular bent against people who run fast or something like that. Now, the, the quick is simply an old English word that means living. So the creed declares that one day Jesus will come to judge all of humanity, those who are alive when he comes and those who have died, the quick and the dead. It's everyone. So Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. So what does it mean to judge? Well, quite simply, a judge is one who administers Justice. Now, we often think of justice as just punishing evildoers, right? But it's so much bigger than that. A true judge doesn't just punish those who do wrong and reward those who do good. A true judge also protects the weak. Protects the weak so they'll be, be, be shielded from oppression and exploitation. A true judge not only makes sure that certain laws are obeyed, but, but that judge also makes sure that those laws themselves are just. A judge is one who says yes to all that which has been determined to be good and life-giving and, and that which provides for human flourishing. And, and a judge is one who says no to that which is not. Things that are bad and life-taking and, and diminish human flourishing. A judge says no to those things. That's what judgment is, or at least that's what it's supposed to be. 
But seems to me our culture has got it kind of skewed. We've got some, some different ideas about judgment. As I see it, there are about two, two equally erroneous and potentially dangerous ways that our culture has led us to think about judgment. First is what I would call conservative legalism. Conservative legalism. It's, it, it, conservative legalism says that there are rules that must be followed. There are norms that must be kept, ideals that must be lived up to no matter what. And for that to happen, well, that means that everyone's a judge. I mean, think about it. In our culture, in, in just kind of our daily lives, we are all judging and being judged all the time. In our workplaces, we are being judged on, on how well we perform, how much we produce, how efficient, how hardworking, how successful we are. We're judged on our outward appearance, on how small we can get our waistlines, how big we can get our muscles, how much hair is left on our heads or wrinkles show up on our foreheads. We're judged by the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, the homes we live in, the places we go on vacation, all signs to a watching and judging world of our overall worth, financial and otherwise. We're judged by our children how smart they are, how many activities they excel in, what school they get into, what career they pursue. In conservative legalism, the world is judging us. Conservative legalism, we're judging ourselves. And God, well, God is judging us all at the same time. And we must measure up. Failure, in conservative legalism, failure is not an option. Perfection is required. Which in the end really just means that we're all faking it, right? Nobody's perfect, but we're faking it as hard as we can, which just leaves us all exhausted. <laughs> and we all fail. We fail each other, we fail ourselves. And ultimately, we fail God. And we don't like to fail. I, I don't like to fail. So when given the option of conservative legalism, most of us run away as hard as we can, and we swing to the other end of the spectrum, which is what I would call progressive individualism. Now, while conservative legalism makes everyone the judge, progressive individualism says there is no judge. No one person can decide for any other person what's good or bad, right or wrong, moral or immoral. Every individual must decide for him or herself. Right? Progressive, progressive individual... Sorry, that's hard to say, right? <laughs> progressive individualism not only disallows people from being one another's judge, which could actually be a good thing, but problematically, it disallows God from being the judge. A progressive individualist says, if God is a God of love, then God cannot be a God of judgment. The two cannot, will not, do not go together. But we have to ask, is that really true? Can love and judgment never go together? I mean, they certainly go together in our human experience. We know from our own lives that, that sometimes the most 
loving people are, are sometimes filled with anger and wrath and judgment, not despite their love, but exactly because of it. Author Becky Pippert puts it this way. Think about how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's judgment is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race. The human race he loves with his whole being. See, the Bible says, that God's judgment flows from his deep love for his creation. And so God says no to, God sometimes even gets angry at evil and injustice because they are literally destroying the peace and the integrity, the wholeness and the beauty that God created this world to have. God's love and judgment, they go hand in hand. But I know, I know still, there are some progressive individualists out there who will argue there just, there cannot be. There cannot be a God of judgment for a judging God, a wrathful God, a God who says no will only inspire human judgment, human wrath, even human violence. But I will tell you, if you ask people who have seen true human wrath, horrific human violence. They do not see things that way. Miroslav Volf, who is a, a professor of theology at Yale University, several years ago, he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And this book served as his own theological reflection on the absolute horrors he himself witnessed in his own home country of Croatia during the Yugoslav Wars. And in this book, he argues that the ideal of nonviolence, the ideal of peaceful human resistance to violence and oppression, nonviolence is actually inextricably tied to the notion of divine judgment. If we're going to succeed at nonviolence, he says, we need a God of wrath. Let's listen to what he writes. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and, and did not make a final end to violence, well, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, will be unpopular with many in the West but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Do you see what he's saying here? See, 
having seen what he's seen, having endured what he has endured, Wolf knows that there is this deep-seated impulse in all of us to make people pay for their crimes. I mean, think about it. If you had seen your home and, and, and your village, your neighborhood, burn to the ground, if you had witnessed your wives and your daughters and your sisters being brutally raped and killed, your husbands and your sons and your brothers forced to commit genocide, then you know. You know that, that platitudes like, well, now you know that violence only leads to more violence. You know that, that statements like that, they don't help at all. They don't lead anywhere. They don't make sense. If I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, then I am going to take up my sword and I'm going to get sucked into that endless cycle of retaliation. It is only if I am sure that there is a God who will put all things right, who will right all wrongs, settle all accounts perfectly, only then do I have the power to seek peace. So, Conservative legalism says that everyone is the judge. And progressive individualism says no one is the judge. And neither is working for us. We've got to find another way. Which is why it's actually really, really good news to proclaim that Jesus Christ will come to judge. Jesus Christ is the judge who says yes to that which he has determined to be good and beautiful and life-giving. And Jesus Christ is the judge who provides the best pathway to human flourishing. Jesus says yes to all of that. And Jesus Christ is the judge who says no sometimes with anger, no to that which is evil and oppressive and life-taking. Jesus Christ is the one who will put a final end to anything or anyone that diminishes, defaces, or destroys our ability to flourish in the way that God intends. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean that we do indeed have a divine judge? Well, for one thing, I think it means we're accountable. We're accountable for the choices that we make in this life. Accountable for what we do with the resources that God entrusts to us. Accountable for how we treat the people around us. Just read Matthew 25 sometime this week. It's pretty clear on this. How we treat the people around us, particularly the poor and the oppressed, how we treat Jesus. It matters, ultimately, whether I accept God's love or I refuse it. It matters, eternally, whether I love my neighbors or exploit them. Now, we need to understand in all this that when we talk about God as judge, we're not talking about a God who sends people to hell. It's not what we mean by that. Hard truth is, a whole lot of people send themselves to hell by turning their backs on God and going the way they please. Scripture affirms that God desires for all people to be saved, but God will never, 
God will never, ever, ever force us or coerce us. God gives us the freedom to choose. And that freedom is extended all the way to the final day. So if, if what we want in this life is to be in, in right relationship with God and one another, to, to love God and our neighbors as God intends, well then in the next life, that's what we'll get eternal, unbroken fellowship with God and with all creation. It's what the Bible calls heaven. It's what it is. But the converse is also true. That if what we want most in this life is to be on our own, to have as little to do with God or our neighbors as possible, well, then in the next life, that's what we'll get. Separation. Isolation. According to the Bible, that's what hell is all about. But make no mistake, God doesn't send anyone there. As C.S. Lewis puts it, he says there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God, in the end, says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. If you're a determined non-believer, sobering statement. But if you are a seeking believer, a wonderfully comforting truth. For remember, the one before whom we will all stand is a judge who knows us totally and loves us completely. A judge who has been tempted and tested and tried in every way that we are. A judge who hung on the cross for us, bearing in his own body the sin of the entire human race. Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. What wonderfully good news. As I come to Christ's table today, I'm holding on to this, that the one who will judge my life is the same one who loved me enough to die for me. The one who even now pleads for me before the throne of God. The one who is committed to me and who promises to change me into his glorious likeness. So I can pray with confidence. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, my gracious Savior, come, my faithful Lord, come, my loving judge. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. 
he ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 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 Amen.